Well, we have a special privilege today. Um, we have a, a surprise guest speaker with us today, someone who's coming from Wilmington, North Carolina, to teach to us, Daniel Gillespie, a longtime friend of Grace Church of the Valley. And Daniel has been a part of what has gone on here from the very beginning, in fact, and uh, spoke several times when this was Grace Bible Study, meeting on Sunday nights. And uh, Daniel's the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. And we're so thankful to have him here with us. He's been there for just about three years. And uh, he and his wife, Lisa, have two sweet little boys, um, Jacob and Josiah. And they have a change of life coming in June when a little girl arrives on the scene. And so he's been practicing at my house the last couple of days. And uh, the sensitivity of the emotions has been a whole new ball game for Daniel. So you can be praying that way for him. I'm particularly glad to have Daniel with us this morning because he stands as a, a brother in arms. Uh, we come from the same heritage and I enjoyed the blessing of serving together at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. And as I thought about Daniel and I think about his ministry and even our relationship now, um, so far apart from each other and yet so close in what we're doing, and Cornerstone really is a sister church to Grace Church, I thought of Second Timothy chapter 2. And Paul commends young Timothy to share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he explains to Timothy that no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. And the theme, the principle that is given there in Second Timothy chapter 2 is that the man of God must be entirely set apart for the work of God. And Daniel stands as a testimony to that. He's an encouragement to me as he pours his life into Cornerstone Baptist Church. And I know that you're going to be rich, richly blessed by your interaction with him this morning as he studies the Word of God with us and leads us and preaches the Word of God to us. And so let's welcome him together. We smack our hands together in America to welcome people. So let's welcome Daniel as he comes and opens God's Word. Well, I know being a pastor that when you introduce a guest speaker, you have to say it's a privilege to have them. So I don't know if it's a privilege for you or not. I hope it is, but I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, it is a privilege to be here. Um, I was telling people out there on the, on the patio, several people, um, my fondness for this church is overwhelming. There is no other pulpit that I would rather be in outside of my own in North Carolina than this one. And uh, it, it's just a sweet fellowship that we um, have. 3,000 miles apart, but um, our church has some interesting connections. One of yours departed and went to one of us, so I hope that when he left, uh, Randy and his family, that you did not say he went out from us because he was not of us. He is most certainly of you, and now he's with us, and if you need to call and check on him, you can. And uh, So we have connection. In fact, the first, um, first Shepherds Conference after I went to um, Cornerstone, I came out with some men from my church and I went to get a hot dog and, and they had already gotten their food and, and was sitting down eating and I went to get my hot dog and I came back around the corner and what had happened out of the 3,000, 3,500 men that are there, my men had run into the Jacksons and the Muxlows and they were all sitting at the same table together and they were just looking at me and laughing and I thought, this is not good. <laughs> but uh, we have had a great time. I, I rob you of Adam's time often. Um, he is an encouragement to me, and uh, this church is an encouragement to me. I'm so grateful to God for his favor that he's extended to you. Um, 
we have a great God and he is good. And so I'm grateful to be here this morning. Let me do this and open us uh, our time before the word in prayer. God, we are dependent on your grace, as we've heard earlier in this service, not only for salvation, but we need your grace every day. We even need your grace at this time, Lord. Our, our minds are feeble and frail. Our attention is short. Our hearts are often hard. So we ask that you would be kind to us and soften our hearts, remove distractions from us, and let your word change us. May we be open before it. May we be humble before you. And may you be honored in the response to your word this morning. May you be glorified in all things. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I was preaching from Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And I was preaching on the idea, the first two verses of Isaiah 66, on attractive worship. There's a phrase in Isaiah 66 in which... Uh, The writer uh, says, quoting God, to this one, I will look. And I thought, what a great lead in. I want to be one of those people that God looks at, that God that catches God's eye in a pleasant and pleasing way. And it says one that's humble and one that's contrite in spirit and then one who trembles at my word. And I preached this text in the past and I came to this section of the text and I felt conviction as I was preaching. And I don't know about you, but conviction is not necessarily a fun thing to feel, whether you're in your own study at home or whether you're driving down the road. But let me just tell you, for those of you who haven't preached, conviction in public while you're preaching is excruciating. And I was preaching this text and it just overwhelmed me that the characteristic and the mark of a believer is one who trembles at the word of God. So I spent the next week, and in fact, the last two weeks, just studying this idea of one who trembles at the word of God. It's not the only time in scripture it's used to mark out a believer. Ezra 9, 4 says, Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered to me. Ezra chapter 10 says, So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of God. Even later in Isaiah 66, hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So it began to dawn on me that this is not just the spiritually elite. This is not just for the pastor. This is not just for the theologian. This is what marks out a child of God. They tremble at the word. And before you begin to water this down with some sort of, um, well, what does tremble really mean? Let me give you a reference that this exact same word is used in Judges chapter seven. You don't need to turn there. In fact, you'll probably remember from Sunday school of yesteryear, the story of Gideon. And what was Gideon's problem? But that he had too many men. And so how do you weed out a group of men? Well, you understand that ultimately there was this strange situation where God weeded them out based on how they drank water. But what was the first one? The first way that God wanted to minimize the number of people in Gideon's army was this. Judges seven. Verse three, now, therefore, come proclaim in the hearing of the people, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return. Afraid and trembling. So twenty two thousand people returned and ten thousand remained. That is not a good sign for any law enforcement 
or any military. If two thirds of your people go home when you say anyone here scared and they go home. But this is the concept that is used. Trembling and fear. So the question sort of echoed in my mind, why then do we not tremble at the word of God? Why am I not fearful? Why am I not reverent before the word of God? Why do I not tremble? And I realized it is because I do not consider the word of God worthy of fear. I went on a fly fishing trip with some, how do you say it from up here about people down in L.A., down south? Down south. I went on a fly fishing trip with some people down south. And I will leave the names of these people out of the story to protect the guilty because some of you know them. I spent the night in a trailer. This was my first time fly fishing with these men. In fact, it was um, I was rather new to the group, but I, I spent the night in a trailer that you would pull behind a truck. So there wasn't a lot of room. It was a tight little scenario. We had four men in this one particular trailer. And so to alleviate some of the room, we set our cooler outside the door. Our cooler had ice in it and some drinks, and it had a bunch of strawberries. Someone had picked up some fresh strawberries and put those in the cooler. We set that outside the door. What about midnight? We heard a sound. And it was one of those unmistakable sounds that you know. You, that I don't know what this is about a cooler, but everyone knows. It, 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 it tells on everyone. Anyone that wants to sneak a drink out of a cooler, they're, they're told on because of the sound of a hand going through ice in a cooler. Well, we heard that at midnight. We thought, how strange. We're in the middle of a campground. Who would steal a drink of water? And then all of a sudden, the noise started to get a little louder and and violent. I thought, man, they're really after some water. And all of a sudden, it dawned on us, this was no man outside, but this was a bear. And uh, I don't know if petrified would be the word that we would use, but uh, certainly there was a little bit of fear that was starting to come over us that there was a bear just two feet outside the door. After the sound subsided, a few minutes or, you know, 30 seconds, a minute goes by. And one of the guys hops down off the bunk and he grabs a gun. Um, his name is Rambo, his code name. Because he shoots everything. I mean, from his office window, he'll shoot anything that moves. He was a little more experienced in this than, than I was and the, the other guy sitting next to me was. And he cracked open the door and he saw certainly all our strawberries were gone. There was an empty Ziploc bag. Cooler was empty. And he closed the door and he put his gun away and got back in bed. And a few minutes passed and silence was just overwhelming. And the silence was broken. And uh, was broken with my friend who said, hey, uh, hey um, I'll use Rambo because but he didn't say that. He used his real name. He said, uh, hey, uh, Rambo, that bear couldn't get in the trailer, could it? And there was a brief silence. You heard Rambo say, He opened the cooler, didn't he? And I kid you not, just like in the cartoons, when it's pitch black, I saw the eyeballs open and just this terror went over my friend and a little bit over me. Because, see, what had happened is the fear that should have been real in our hearts was suppressed by this false understanding that a bear can't open a trailer door. Well, that reality was brought to light when a friend said, well, he opened the cooler, didn't he? See, our lack of fear was unrealistic. We should have been afraid, very afraid. We do the same thing in regards to Scripture. We've believed the lie of Satan that Scripture is not all it's cracked up to be. Scripture is not really worthy of fear. And so we're not afraid. 
We don't tremble. This has been Satan's tactic ever since the garden. He's always attacking the strength, the validity, and and yes, even the awesome danger of the word of God. And it's really been his ploy ever since. So this morning, it is my goal that we will what we will try and do this morning is to restore the reputation of the word. And hopefully return it to its right and reverent place in our lives. In short, we will learn how today and why to tremble at God's word. Tremble at God's word. We're going to give look at three ways to put the fear of God's word in your heart. And the first is almost axiomatic. It is respect the source. I would be willing to bet that on the cover of your Bible, it says, if it doesn't say the Holy Bible, it will say the word of God. It certainly is a reference in which that we call the scriptures the word of God. That is the source. You say that seems elementary. This is where we get the word. It is the word of God. Now, our culture today minimizes this. In fact, I was talking with Adam about reading a book from a quote unquote evangelical scholar that minimizes the uniqueness of Scripture. And he says, well, it's really just like any other book that was written in that day. There's not much that would separate it. And I thought every at every page I'm marking, well, this is the word of God. This is not the word of man. In fact, how does the Bible refer to itself? But first Thessalonians chapter two, Paul wrote them and he said, we thank God. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God. Second, Timothy three, 16, all scripture is inspired by God, or you may have the ESV, which says, I think, breathed out by God or the NIV, which says God breathed. R.C. Sproul even says, you know, it's probably better for us not to work, speak so much of the inspiration of scripture as the expiration of scripture. We focus often on the scribe of scripture and rarely on the source. This is the word of God to us. We've done a disservice to ourselves in an attempt to protect the word. An attempt to say that the word is complete, that revelation is complete and that we don't need additional revelation. What we have done accidentally is minimize this. We use terms like God doesn't still speak today. Well, yes, he does. Revelation, though complete, is not silent. Revelation has not finished. It is completed. But God reveals himself every day to the world through his word. Isn't that a staggering thought that the God of the universe decided to humble himself, to reveal himself to his creation? We would have no other way of knowing about God apart from his word. God reveals himself Daily, it is the only way in which we can know God is through his word. And so if it is the word of God, I thought it would be helpful for us just to point out some things that the word of God does. Just so that we can maybe write the resume of the word of God. In Psalm 33, verse 6. Psalmist writes, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. 
He gathers the water of the sea together as the heap. He lays the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Flip over to Genesis 1, perhaps a little more familiar text to you. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. Verse 6. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. On and on it goes. How was the earth created but by the word of God? He spoke and it came into being. The living word on this earth, Jesus Christ, spoke. And in Luke chapter 8 was one of my favorite narrative passages. You have the scene of the weathered, um, strong, calloused sailors. And they're out on the sea, and the sea is in turmoil. It's like a hurricane on a lake. So much so that these just, you know, veteran sailors are scared to death. And they find Jesus asleep and they wake him up and they say, we we need your help. Verse 24, and he got up and he rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. Why did it stop? Because of the word of God. All of creation exists because of his word. All of creation acts according to his word in perfect obedience. Isaiah 55 God says, so my word will. So will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I send it. God's word never fails. God's word created the earth. God's word word sustains and dictates the earth, all of his creation. And it is never, never fails. This is what you have in your hand. This is the word of God. Do not minimize this to think that it is an accurate historical textbook. But this is the word of God that created the world. So much so that the word of God is not only powerful and able, but it's also dangerous. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, Moses records, And all the people perceived the thunder and lightning and flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. You'll remember this in the revelation that had been given And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, I don't know if you remember this line, but this is telling. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us. Or we will die. They feared the word of the Lord. But somehow we put it in a leather binding. And it's impotent to us. It's not terrifying. It's not dangerous. It's not powerful. If you're a fan of C.S. Lewis, you're certainly, or at least his writing on um, the narrative level, you'll recall in the Chronicles of Narnia the story when uh, the children went to meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they were asking about the mighty lion. And Lucy said, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver? Certainly not. 
I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the seas. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The same is true of Scripture. It is not safe. It is not benign. It is not simple. It is dangerous and powerful. We have analogies in Scripture of itself that that speak of it. Jeremiah 23 says, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters a rock? When's the last time you described your Bible study in that kind of way? What about Hebrews 4.12? For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. What did the two-edged mean? Well, a one-edged sword was to be used in the home, like you would cut your meat and your bread and so forth. A two-edged sword was used in battle. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we dress up our Bible... You know, we put covers on them with flowers and zip around and we might get a nice leather binding and we give them as gifts to our children. Yet when you pick up your Bible, do you realize that it's a rock, that it's a hammer that shatters the rock, that it's a consuming fire, that it's a sword that pierces? I think this is one of the reasons many believers stay at arm's distance to the word, because they know It's dangerous. They don't like to admit it, but we know it's dangerous. So we'll leave it at arm's distance. Perhaps we'll pick it up enough to bring it on Sunday. But we like to stay far enough away from it. We won't dive into it because we know it hurts. We don't want our intentions separated, our thoughts and our intentions pierced like a sword that would go through our body. We're like the snake catchers. You know those charmers that are on, those snake charmers or whatever that are on Discovery Channel or whatever that you might see, and they stay this far away from a snake, and you say, well, how absurd is that? Why do they do that? Because they know, now, I don't have this confidence, but they have confidence that a snake can only strike this far, and so they stay just outside the bounds of it. This is how we operate with Scripture. We know if we get close enough, it's going to start to put our life, it's going to open our life up and expose us. It's going to show us our sinful motivations, our wicked hearts, our selfishness. So we stay at arm's length, just outside of its striking distance. The word of God is dangerous and it's painful. And there should be a strong sense of fear in coming before it. Psalm 119, 120, the psalmist writes, I'm afraid of your judgment. Do you fear it? Do you fear the word of God? Do you teach your children to fear it? This is the power of the word of God. And this is what we have in our hands. It is able and capable and almighty and it is unsafe. But it is nonetheless, much like Aslan, very good.
You see, this leads us to the second way in which we should tremble or the second motivation to tremble. Now, this one is only true for the believer. The first one is true for anyone who approaches the word of God. It is dangerous. So while unsafeness, if I can coin a term, is universal. The second reason to tremble is not. It is for the believer alone. And if we're to begin with, to respect the source or to recognize the source, we're secondly to rejoice in the substance. The reason I say it's only for the believer is because the Bible is good only for the believer. The Bible is damning for those who do not believe it. But for those who have leaned on Jesus for repose, the Bible's power and authority is on your side. It's always for your good. It's the power of God unto salvation. We understand that in Romans 1, it speaks of that. James 1.21 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. It is the word of God which saves. But secondly, it's the power of sanctification. When Jesus, in praying in his high priestly prayer to the Father, and he gives them a means to sanctification, what does he say? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There are other sanctifying means, are there not? There are trials that come into your lives that sanctify. There are children in your lives that sanctify. Uh, Dave was even talking about that marriage sanctifies, which it really does, does it not? We have young people come to our church and they just say, well, I just don't think I'm ready to get married. I say, you're right, you're not. You never will be. You're never going to be ready to get married. Marriage makes you ready to be married. So you need to be in it before you're ever going to be sanctified enough to be married. So um, let's just throw that out the window. But the main means of sanctification in our life is the word of God. And yet we wonder why we're not holy. If the main means of sanctification in our life is sanctify them with the truth. And yet we stay at arm's distance for the truth. And then we look at our life and say, gee, I wonder why I still act so sinfully. Why am I still so selfish? Because we've abrogated the word of God. We've put it on a shelf. It's merely a toolbox that we'll turn to every once in a while that we need. But it is the main means of sanctification. None rival the word of God for shaping the believer. Hebrews 4.12. It exposes our motivations. It lays before us our hearts that we know are so deceptive and so wicked. It calls us to repentance. It directs us to the resurrection life. It tells us how to walk worthy. In fact, flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is inspired by God. This is verse 16, sorry. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God, or God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Wouldn't it be nice to be adequate and equipped? And adequate doesn't mean, we use that term almost in a negative connotation. Well, he, it, it's adequate, it's okay. That doesn't mean that. It means thoroughly furnished. It means completed. It means ready to go. Wouldn't that be a wonderful characteristic and mark to have in your own life? 
This is what the word of God does for the believer. Yet the converse should not be overlooked. If this is what is true of the biblically literate, then what is true of the biblically illiterate? That they are not adequate and they are not equipped. The psalmist agrees with this. Adam read Psalm 19. That the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The word of God makes us adequate. Apart from it, we are inadequate and ill-equipped. But it's not only that the biblically illiterate Christian is ill-equipped and inadequate, but he's also unhappy. Flip over to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Blessed is the man. Oh, happy is the man. That's the person you want to be like. This is the psalmist way. This is the Hebrew way of saying, I envy that fellow. I want to be like him. Why? Because his delight is in the law of the Lord. Psalm 19 speaks of it in verse 10, that they are more desirable. That's God's word than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You see, because the one who has the word of God, the one who is literate, the one who is saturated with the word of God has a stable life. Psalm 1 speaks of that as like a tree planted by streams of water. They're not cast around here by every trial and every storm that comes their way. Also a successful life, both Joshua and Joshua 1, chapter 8, I mean, Joshua 1, verse 8, he gets a pep talk from God. You're getting ready to take over an ornery group of people. And here Joshua gets a pep talk from God and God says, do not depart from the word. And if you depart, if you don't depart from the word, you will be prosperous and successful wherever you turn. You have almost the identical pep talk when David hands over his dominion to Solomon and he says, do not depart from the precepts of God. You would expect some sort of military um, explanation. Everybody's gathered around to hear this handover of power and what's going to make a good king. Here's how you should relate to your other nations. Here's your military plan. Here's your economic stimulus package. No, what does he say? Do not depart from the word of God and you'll be successful and prosperous in all that you do. But it also satisfies. It's not just that it makes you stable and successful, but it's satisfied. I mean, listen to the psalmist when he talks about it being more desirable than gold. In fact, in Psalm 119, verse 14, he said, I rejoice in the word more than all riches. Verse 72, he gets a little more specific, better than a thousand pieces of silver are your commandments. Blessed is the man. The word is delightful. And guys, I think this is where the church has failed. And I mean, churches like ours. You see, it is rare today to find a church that has a high view of God. But even in churches that have a high view of God that often present the necessity of Scripture, rarely do we unveil the joy of Scripture. Sure, we know that it, it is necessary and that we have to have it and that our children need it and that we need it 
and our marriages need it. And Bible study is stressed and encouraged and it's expected. But the scriptures become to us like medicine. Or like vegetables. Unless you really like vegetables, then that analogy doesn't work for you. And this mentality requires us to grit our teeth at Scripture, to grit and bear it. And it's almost, it's, this is where you get the idea that if I spend 15 minutes before the Lord in His Word, or heaven forbid, 50 minutes in front of a long-winded preacher who opens the Word, I have to wash it down with some other form of entertainment or something that makes it just easy. So you find youth groups and, and churches that have you know, kids playing Xboxes for an hour and a half after a 15-minute message. Why? Because the Word of God is not presented as enjoyable, but it's medicine that you have to have. This is not how the Scripture speaks of itself. It makes no apology like, I'm sorry it tastes like sewer water, but you need it. This is not how it should be. True, the Scriptures are essential. Right? When Peter writes, you should long for it like a like a, ba- a newborn baby longs for the pure milk of the word, the baby's not necessarily saying, well, that's, it, that's pointing to the necessity of Scripture. When Christ says man cannot live by bread alone, that's speaking to the necessity of Scripture. But when the psalmist says, I delight in the law, more than any jewel that you could put in front of me, more than any riches you could cast my way, sweeter than any honeycomb is the word of God. We have missed that. What if you went to the doctor tomorrow and you walked in the door and the doctor said, oh, you're in really bad shape. Your blood pressure's through the roof. Your cholesterol is high. Your body's racked with disease. Your body's going to fail unless we do some really drastic measures. I've got to have to give you some medicine and put you on a strict diet. And you would take a deep breath, right? You'd probably be sitting down. He'd ask you to sit down and you would be prepared for the worst. And so he takes out his pen and he begins to scribble in the style of writing that only doctors can read and he writes down these doctor's orders and so you grab it and you take it to the pharmacy and you're expecting just horrible medicine you're expecting to have the pharmacist say now you know that you're supposed to have this kind of diet but this is what the pharmacist reads he takes it and he reads the doctor's orders and it says this sir make sure that you take two snickers before every meal make sure that you eat cheeseburgers and pizza at least five times a week Remove all unsavory roughage from your diet. Maintain uh, maintain as high a level of sugar and fat intake as possible. And make sure you drink at least eight glasses. Well, I would say of sweet tea, but you'd probably, what would you do up here? Uh, Strawberry milkshake. I don't know. What would you say to that? You would go to that doctor and you would recommend that doctor to everyone in the world, wouldn't you? This is the psalmist expression of the word of God. It will do everything that you need. But it tastes great going down. You don't need a spoonful of sugar to make scripture. Go down. And if you don't think so, you haven't tried it. If you think that scripture is more like asparagus than apple pie, it's because you don't know it. If I start to grit my teeth to come before the word of God and to study, it's because I don't know it. The psalmist knew it. And he knew how precious it was. He knew its capabilities. He knew how sweet it was. Man, that's my prayer for you and for me today. That we would learn to love the word of God. 
that he would put in our hearts an appetite for it. Not just an appetite, well, I need to eat this, but I want to. I can't wait to. Did you ever find that disconnect? Do you ever read Psalm 1 and say, it's this meditation a day, all day and all night? I mean, who does that? The person that does that knows the word of God. And the reason I can tell you this is because I know the word of God is true. And so if it speaks of itself in that way, I know it is great. I know it is sweet. And if I haven't acquired the taste for it yet, it's because I have not spent enough time in it. Now, this adds a slightly different angle to our trembling, but it's a trembling nonetheless. If you can think that the holy God that created the world gave his revelation and not only did he give it, but it is good and it is sweet, then you tremble at it. You're so grateful for it. But there remains a third and final means to trembling. Revere the source, yes. Rejoice in the substance, certainly. But lastly, recognize the sufficiency. Recognize the sufficiency. We read in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture that is breathed by God is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The word of God is sufficient. The insufficiency of all other things was represented when Christ said man can't live by bread alone. It wasn't just bread. He had nothing against bread. He was just simply saying you must have the word of God. It alone is sufficient. When Jesus was tempted, he relied on the scriptures. Psalm 119.97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. For they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. The word of God is sufficient. In John 14, 6, when Christ spoke of himself, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, this is the incarnate word, but the word nonetheless. And he uses the truth. And I think this is not just grammatically to emphasize but i think it is to be exclusive jesus christ is the truth the only truth the word of god therefore is the only truth so it's in a way in essence you could say there is no truth apart from christ there is no truth apart from the word there is no certainty apart from the word so why do we lay it down in so many circumstances in our life we check our gun at the door I'm not carrying this Bible into my college classroom. The professor's going to laugh at me. I'm not going to use the Bible to counsel someone in their marriage. I mean, that, this is 2,000 years old. I'm not going to use the Bible when I talk to an unbeliever. They're not going to relate to it. Are you kidding me? How foolish. This is the word of God. It is adequate for anything. I saw an interview with Richard Dawkins. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's probably the premier atheist in um, the world today. And I don't know what it takes to be a premier atheist, but I guess he's the most well-known atheist. And he was in an interview and the person was addressing him. He obviously disagreed with Richard Dawkins and he made this statement. And this was a very good statement. He said, you know what? I think it takes more faith to be an atheist. That is a true statement. I agreed with him. I said, that's great. And Dawkins said, why? And this is where the gentleman failed, I think. He said, look around, look at nature. This is true. It is true that an atheist cannot explain. You know, Adam read Psalm 19 at the very beginning. It speaks of God's general revelation and the the heavens that were created and the sun that goes back and forth. 
An atheist can't explain that. That's true. But Dawkins then distracted the man because he knew something. He knew a flaw in this guy's logic, and so he distracted him effectively. He had exposed the fact that an atheist has no explanation for nature. He has no explanation for the intricacy of the eye, for um, child, children being born from the creation of the world, anything like that. But he distracted him effectively by saying this. I'm assuming you don't believe in Zeus, though. I'm assuming you probably believe in the God of the Bible or in Jesus Christ. He said, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. He said, why? And the interviewer was at a loss. He had no explanation. You see, because the only thing an intelligent design platform gets you is an intelligent designer. And so Dawkins then began to mock him and say, well, what if I said I believed in the spaghetti monster that he created all of this? What if I believed in some pink fairy or a unicorn that created all of this? What would you then say? You believe in the God of the Bible because you believe in the Bible. It is the source of truth. He could have undermined his Dawkins entire um, platform by saying, I believe in the word of God. Now, understand this. This is a line of attack. You must understand if you believe in the Bible, you are the only you have the only source of absolute infallible truth. Dawkins is admittedly leaning on something that's proven fallible. He would not claim to be God. He would not claim that he has heard from another source that is perfect. He's leaning on his own wisdom, which he would admit is fallible. And he's leaning on science, which he knows is fallible. You can look at him and say, I lean on the word of God, which claims in and of itself to be perfect. How's that for an audacity in an author to say, yeah, I wrote it and everything in it is true. You lean on that, and it's proven over thousands of years to be true, but that is your stance. It is the word of God. It is sufficient. And you say, well, this seems childish because the Bible tells me so. It doesn't really seem like a profound defense. Yet it was the defense that the psalmist said, it makes me wiser than all my enemies. I have more learning than all my teachers because I trust in your word. Many theologians in the past have likened Scripture to a lion, and they simply say, let it out of the cage. Yet we walk in front of it, we kind of drag it behind us like some meek, meager puppy that hasn't learned to attack or anything like that, and we're almost apologetic for it. This is the word of God. It needs no defense. Stand on it. We have one infallible source for truth. Do you understand that? One infallible source of truth. Every other argument is based on a flawed or fallible source. I don't know about you, but I was taught in science class that Pluto was a planet. If you go into schools today, they will tell you that Pluto is not a planet. Why? Because science has proven, this is really all science has proven, is that we can fail in our assessment of the world. Right? Science is a history of failure. That's all it is. And yet this is what people lean on for their basis of truth in life. I, I was extremely frustrated going through Genesis. I taught through Genesis with our people and going through Genesis one and two. I researched commentary after commentary about the creation of the world. And I said, you know, very few people take the, the word of the, the creation. The world was created in six literal days. Very few. Am I wrong? You know, that's daunting when really bright men 
don't take that view. And so I studied and I studied and I studied. And I recognized this out of every one of those commentators, every one of those theologians, that there came a point. Never did I find, never did I find in any commentary that said, no, the word of the world of that we live in, it was not created in six days. Never did I find one that said, look at the text. This text leans to, points us to, you know, 18 billion years or whatever we're up to these days. They always said, well, there's a there, there's an out. It maybe it's this way. And science or culture or society always motivated them to choose something other than what the word of God says. Staggering. These men are far brighter than I am. Studied many more years than I have. And yet the word of God in their mind was not sufficient. It's staggering. Psalm 1946, the psalmist write, I will speak of your testimony before kings and I shall not be ashamed. Some people speculate that Psalm 119 was written by Daniel. I think that would be fitting in that verse. At least think Daniel had that perspective. I'll speak of your word before kings and I'm not afraid. The word of God is sufficient. You may be familiar with the story in church history of Martin Luther. And when he was addressed publicly and they said, you need to recant. They put all his books up on his table, uh, which is why I don't write books, because then they can't find anything to to go after me. They take all his books and they throw them on the table and say, you need to recant. And if you're familiar with church history, you're probably familiar with this phrase, this well-known speech. And Luther said, unless I'm convicted by the scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils. And then there's this prepositional phrase that is telling. Why does he not accept the pope and the council? For they have contradicted each other. They're flawed. He continues, my conscience then is held captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And then there's debate on whether this last line was authentic or not. And he said, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And I don't know whether that last line was legitimate in history, but that's a great line. I'd like to adopt that. God help me. I can do no other. It's the word of God on that and that alone. I stand. Why did Luther say that? Because he recognized there is no other truth. One of the greatest eye opening things in evangelism when we were going through the gospel of John. There comes a point in John chapter 6, I believe it is, when all the disciples or many of the disciples part. You remember that? I think it's in 66. And Christ turns to his 12. He said, you're going to go too? And Peter looked at him and said, where else will we go? In other words, there's no other truth. This might be painful. We may not like to hear all the messages that you're going to talk about and picking up your cross and. But there's no other truth. There's nowhere else to go. And that's what you have in the word of God. There is no other source of infallible truth in all the world. There is no other place to go. So in parenting, in marriage, in this church. It's the word of God. You don't come here to hear Adam. You certainly didn't come here to hear me. You come to hear the word of God. Please don't let any area of your life. Rise to a level that you think the word of God cannot address it. That is a lie of Satan. That is Satan saying that bear can't open the door. That bear doesn't have the power to open the door. Don't be scared of it. Let us tremble at the word of God. 
Because not only is it powerful, not only is it sweet, but it's sufficient for all things. I have to admit that I was completely selfish in picking this to preach because I need it. I need that as a pastor to have the confidence to know that it's the word of God that I stand on. I need to know, why do people come and hear me? Because of the word of God. I have nothing helpful to say apart from the word of God. Let all of our confidence be in it. There was a story in the Old Testament. It's fond to me because we named our second child Josiah. But if you remember, Josiah was one of the few good kings. And in 2 Kings chapter 22, Josiah had word brought to him that they had found the word of God. Well, in fact, they just said, we found a book and they began to read it to him. And when he realized it was the word of God that had been long since kept in a closet, hidden away, Never used. And this is by God's chosen people of Israel. And the word of God had been banished. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. He commanded the priest and the scribe. And he said of them in verse 13, go inquire of the Lord. For me and the people and all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written in it concerning us. It is my prayer. That our children and our children's children never pick up this book and tear their clothes at the awesome nature of this book and say our parents and our grandparents and our pastors didn't tell us this. This is the word of God. You cannot have an overzealous opinion of it. Tremble at it. That's my prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God. We are humbled by the fact that you have given us your word. But I think it's fitting for all of us to say that we don't tremble before it as we should. I certainly know that I don't, Lord. I pray that you will use these texts and these truths. To mold me and shape me, let the word do what it says it will do. Conform me to the image of your son. Remove from me. The sin that I cling to. And Lord, elevate the word of God in my heart. Lord, is my prayer for this church. And for the body of Christ around the world. That we will grow in our fear of the word. And that we will be recognized as a people who tremble before it. It's in your name we pray.